and you'll eventually hit a zone called Krumholz, which is a German word for crooked wood. And that's where the trees are really intertwined and you have to force your way through. There, there were plenty of times I was doing maybe a half mile an hour. I mean, maybe. Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. You know, a lot of us on this show dream about doing a big through hike, you know, Appalachian Trail, Pacific Crest Trail, something, somewhere. Um, But not a lot of us dream about actually creating our own route, our own through hiking route. Well, Eric Schlimmer had just that. He wanted to make his own route, so he decided to create the uh, Trans-Adirondack route that goes across the Adirondack Mountains, around 250 miles. And we're going to hear about the experience today, what it was like. Uh, where the idea came from, and and how you actually go about doing that and writing a book about it uh, and spreading the word, letting people know, hey, there's a new trail out there now. So we're going to hear about that experience. Uh, Maybe that's something that excites some of you more than actually hiking the route. There's some, somebody's got to create them, right? Uh, so people like Eric are the ones that, you know, are the reason these trails exist in the first place. So, uh, yeah, it was a great conversation from a few years ago. This is a throwback episode, and I wanted to also apologize for not getting it up yesterday. I just ran out of time, had some technical stuff, uh, was not able to get it out. So here it is, and uh, yeah, enjoy. All right, everybody, welcome to the show. Um, today we have Eric Schlimmer. Eric, welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. Much appreciated. Yeah, and so you you have a pretty diverse and interesting uh, background. I'll try to cover it all, but basically you're, you're an adventurer. You do peak bagging. You've done lots of hiking. You are familiar with uh, trail building. You have some books out that we can talk about. You do trail construction um, as well as just general outdoor knowledge um you and you i would love to talk about one of your projects the trans adirondack route um but overall you just seem to be pretty well adept and and, and an expert in many areas with uh, backpacking in the outdoors that's all correct i'm very fortunate i've made a living in the wilderness or writing about the wilderness speaking about wilderness etc for about the past 20 years uh it's worked out really well. I've started hiking in the 1980s, and here we are. I was just hiking this past weekend, and I intend to go as far as I can. So it's been a very good, very good life so far. I'm very fortunate. Yeah, I'd say that a lot of people probably heard you say that and are pretty jealous, been able to carve a living out of the wilderness. That's really hard to do, but it's good that you're appreciative and, and you understand just how uh, fortunate and hardworking too. I know it doesn't come easy, um, but th- that's really cool. Right. So some people may admire the time I've had in the, in the woods and getting paid to be out there, but I was also out there in the rain when they were nice and dry and snug on their couch. And one summer I lived in a gravel pit and I've eaten way too much ramen. And so you do have to scrap. It's just what kind of lifestyle do you want to develop for yourself? Oh yeah, there's there's definitely some give and take. I think I think that would turn a lot of people off from it as well. So well, yeah, why don't you tell us about that? Where are you coming from today, and and what's your background, and where are you from, and and how did you get into 
building this career out of the outdoors, like you say? Well, I actually grew up as a city kid. I grew up in Poughkeepsie, New York. It's down in the Hudson Valley, about an hour north of New York City. And I was a typical 80s young city dweller. And my parents in the mid-1980s decided to move to the Adirondack Mountains. They had wanted their little home in the country, and they had enough of the hustle and bustle. And I was 12 years old at the time, and so children go where their parents go. And so I got dragged to, to me at the time, seemed like the Tibetan plateau. You know, I went from a city of about 35, uh, 40,000 people to a little town with maybe a thousand people graduating high school class of 30. You know, this is one of those little towns in the mountains. You got to drive a half hour for a pair of jeans. And, uh, (laughs) yeah, I, I was not liking it to say the least. Uh, and then, uh, something that guided my life for the next couple decades happened. I had to come to a decision and that was, I'm going to spend high school hanging out with my parents and big sister, or I'm going to make friends. And uh, I'm sure you have been in high school. And so, you know, the obvious answer, no high schooler wants to hang out with their parents and their big sister. Oh, of course not. Yeah. And so I just started hanging out with uh, my classmates. And at first I didn't think there was really anything to do. You know, I knew nothing about the woods. You just look at the woods and it's a bunch of trees and a bunch of rocks and not much else. But I find myself downhill skiing and deer hunting and fishing and mountain bikes had just came out. So mountain biking and snowboarding just came out as a sport. And so I learned that you could recreate outdoors in many different ways. And then when you start learning a little tree species, maybe a little tracking, how to fish, and you start developing this relationship with the woods where you find out there's a lot more out there besides just trees and rocks. And uh, that's where it all began. Yeah. So what are some of those things you started discovering besides the trees and rocks that sparked your interest? I really like the peace of it all. Um, City dwellers tend to get very used to not seeing the stars at night, uh, not having silence, not having peace. And that was the environment that I grew up in. And At first, when you uh, move to a really small town where nobody locks their doors and you can see the stars at night, or you go even farther into the woods on the backside of a mountain and everything's silent, everything's peaceful, and there's really not a whole lot going on, that can be unsettling. So when I taught outdoor education, I had many students who were from urban environments and they would have trouble sleeping on our camping trips because it was too quiet which is <laughs> in hindsight kind of weird, but that's exactly what I ex- experienced when I first uh, got into true wilderness where it's nice and quiet. So I think what drew me to it was just the simplicity of nature, the quiet. I mean, out in the mountains, there are very few things you have to do. You know, I mean, don't fall off a cliff and when you're cold, stay warm. And if it's really hot, stay cool and eat and drink water and find a flat spot to lay on for the night. And that's a pretty simple life. Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. I, I think you're right in the sense of, uh, it's kind of whittled down to survival. And it's not intense survival, but like basic needs type stuff, like stay warm, literally. That's one of your biggest concerns. Find food, find water, especially when you're out backpacking. Um, it's 
there's something so refreshing about that and so so appealing that you just don't get from the life in the city. Uh, your concerns and your your stresses are all about things that have nothing to do with with survival usually. Yeah, you're you're absolutely correct. Um, you know, my modern day stressors are you know paying bills and finances and and stuff like that. And I take care of those, but I don't find it particularly rewarding. But when you're out in the mountains and you're cold and wet and you set up camp and change into a dry shirt, you know the feeling. It's an incredibly rewarding, uh, psychologically rewarding feeling of getting dry when you're wet, you know, being warm when it's cold, eating when you're hungry. Uh, there's something to be said for those little pleasures that bring me immense joy. Man, uh, man, you are you are speaking my language. And <laughs> for the folks that are listeners that know that feeling, oh, I know y'all are sitting there on your commutes or paying your bills, doing whatever you're doing right now and, and nodding along. But for those of you that haven't experienced that, you've got to experience it. You've got to experience life whittled down to those basic needs and how, I don't know about you, man, but after a long hike, cold day, especially where you're from, where it's just freezing rains to get inside somewhere dry and have a cup of coffee, it'll change your life. (laughs) (laughs) It feels like a life changing moment. And, uh, you know, exactly what you're talking about. And we have that shared experience. And I remember when I taught outdoor education, I, I, I taught for a a handful of universities for about eight or nine years. And I would tell my students who were going out on some kind of longer trips with me in the Adirondack Mountains, I go, just wait, just wait. I hope it rains all day on us because then you're going to get into camp and you're going to be wearing these socks because no boots are really waterproof. You're going to be wearing these sopping, wet, cold, disgusting socks all day. And when you get into camp, you're going to put on a dry pair of socks. And you know what you're all going to say? And I said, what? I go, you're going to go, oh, my God. (laughs) And they did. My prediction always came true. It's those simple things about just improving your life a little bit in the wilderness that bring great reward. It really does, man. What an awesome lifestyle. And to think that so many people will never know what that's like, it's, it's, it's very... It's very sad, but so yeah, you, you've mentioned a few times you were a wilderness or, or an outdoor educator. Uh, how, how did you get to that point? How did you uh, get on that course, and what was that like? Yeah, I think that was uh, maybe the pinnacle of my outdoor career. So throughout the '90s and into the 2000s, I was climbing a lot of mountains, and I did some long distance mountain bike trips and uh, hiked a handful of long distance trails and I was a trail builder. And so I was building my outdoor resume. And what I added to that was uh, doing, I guess you could call them inspirational programs. So I would go on a long distance trip and I would arrange a slideshow and I would go to venues and I would share with people what I saw in the wilderness. And by that time I had a bachelor's in public speaking. So it worked out very well. And I gave a program at a state college in central New York about mountain biking from Canada to Mexico on a a route I designed myself, mostly off-road. 
And this guy comes up to me. I have no idea who he is. He said, wow, great program. What else do you do? And by that point, I had my first book out, A Guide to Long Distance Trails. And I said, hey, you know, I write and I work as a backcountry ranger seasonally and I do quite a bit of public speaking. And he said, well, do you want a job? And I said, well, where at? He goes, right here at the college. I'm looking for an outdoor educator. So oh, wow. what, what a venue, you know, show up, get paid a couple hundred bucks and walk away with a job. So that's where I got into. <laughs> Not uh, bad. <laughs> yeah, that was a very good deal. You know, it's, I mentioned being fortunate already. I've, I've been at the right place at the right time in uh, many ways. So it's worked out great. So uh, that was my first venture into the classroom as a teacher. And this university had an outdoor education minor. So I would teach trail design, uh, navigation, backpacking, canoeing, and leadership. So the students would get, you know, a pretty marketable degree, some kind of bachelor's degree. And they would take the minor kind of as fun, I guess. You know, it's a great way to get college credit to go backpacking and learn about leadership. And so I did that for quite a few years, and it, it was very rewarding. I love working with beginners. I really like working with people who maybe never slept out or they have a little experience, but they're kind of doing things wrong. And I can gently guide them in the ways of the wilderness. You're not doing that now. Why is that? I'm not. Well, there is a problem with academe, at least for me. And that is when I was teaching, I only had a bachelor's. And to be a professor, at least in New York State, you, you need a PhD. And I said, man, there's no way I'm going to get my PhD. So I returned to my roots of trail building for a little while. And, you know, we were talking about, oh, you know, maybe some people find my lifestyle admirable. It's nice to sleep outside all the time. Well, when you hit about 40 years old, it starts to get a little old. And as you're sleeping in a leaky tent, you think about all the all your uh, friends about the same age who are now in their homes under nice clean white sheets and they wake up to bagels and a smoothie and a coffee maker and all these other accoutrements of modern day life. So uh, I ended uh, trail building and outdoor education uh, just a couple of years ago, went back to school myself, got a master's degree in clinical social work, and uh, now I'm going to move into that field. But hey, look, I can't give up on the mountains. So I still write, I still speak. And uh, usually every weekend you cannot find me in town. I'm somewhere wandering in the mountains. That's oh, fantastic. And yeah, yeah, wandering in the mountains, but also still achieving some pretty crazy stuff. You, um, you have achieved uh, climbing all of the Adirondacks 217 mountains above 3,000 feet during winter. And you're only one of a few people to do that, correct? That's right. And uh, it was actually this past Saturday uh, that I finished. So congratulations. <laughs> that is thank awesome. You. Thank you very much. That that was about 20 years in the making. Um, it, it's kind of hard to put a timeline on it because I start a project and I drift away and return to a project. But uh Though I've done a fair amount of long distance hiking, I'm really a peak bagger. I'm one of those people who draws up a list of mountains and just starts ticking them off one by one. I'm a very goal-oriented, list-driven type of person. So the Adirondack Mountains of upstate New York has uh, 217 peaks above 3,000 feet. 
the majority of them are trailless, which makes them very difficult. So if you have a trail, um, okay, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, maybe you have to break trail through the snow, but if it's a popular peak, the trail is going to be broken. But when you get out into these far-flung mountains that nobody's really ever heard of, there's no trail up them. And if anybody's not familiar with the mountains of the Northeast, uh, we have only a couple peaks above treeline, which people out west uh, preferably call timberline. And so you're just going to go up and up and up from, you know, 2,500 to 3,000 to almost 4,000 feet. And the forests are now getting very, very dense. And you'll eventually hit a zone called Krumholz, which is a German word for crooked wood. And that's where the trees are really intertwined and you have to force your way through. Now, that's one thing in the summer to push through. But then when you have, you know, three to maybe 10 feet of snow intermixed with this really dense vegetation, there, there were plenty of times I was doing maybe a half mile an hour. I mean, maybe uh, on a pretty good day, I could get down to a quarter mile an hour. So a list like that weeds out people very quickly. So we have hundreds of people. I mean, it could, gee, I would guess it's definitely over a thousand by now who have hiked the 4,000 foot peaks in winter. But when you get down to 3,000 and above, there are only three people. And that's because of the off-trail travel. Man, now that's, uh, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the 14ers out here. Yes. Li lifelong pursuit for a lot of people. And, you know, there's, depending on how you define it, there's 58 of them, um, nearly 60 of them. And they're, a lot of them are tough. But when you lower it to 13,000 feet, which in my opinion is a better experience because a lot of the trails are very, very lightly used, very secluded experience, wilderness experiences. And come on. 14,200 feet and 13,800 feet, you, you don't know the difference when you're on top looking around. It's incredible. And when there's right. not 50 people on top with you, it makes the experience just a thousand times better. And But when you, when you lower it to 13, I think there's almost 670 mountain peaks that are that are over 13,000. <laughs> so it's, I totally get what you mean. And then when you add winter on top of that, man, I bet so many of those peaks you didn't see a single person the entire trip. Um, yeah, out of the 217, I'd say um, I'm guessing about 150 don't have trails. Wow. I never, I, I never even saw another track on those, let alone people. I mean, not even a snowshoe track, a ski track, nothing. And chances are really good that some of the really remote 3,000 footers, and, and just like you were saying, it's the same here, you know, between 3,000 and maybe 3,900, those peaks don't see much traffic. It's likely that there are peaks out there. We were the only three to ever go up them in winter because, you know, if you've got some 3,200 foot unnamed peak with no view out in the middle of, let's say, West Canada Lake Wilderness, I mean, are you going to go hike it? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. D do challenges that don't make any sense and you'll be the only one to do it. <laughs> yes. You just have to be eccentric enough and you'll find, you'll find that solitude. I I've hiked only a little 
in Colorado, but I can imagine the 13ers, now you're getting into peaks where there maybe isn't a lot of information on them. You have to kind of figure it out on your own. And they're certainly going to be uh, farther back in. You know, I, I did it right. At least that's what I like to think. I, I started with all the high peaks above 4,000 and kind of got those out of the way. And they're certainly challenging in their own ways. But the lower you go, um, the more solitude is out there. And that's that's a main draw for me. What an interesting accomplishment to take so long, man. I, I just imagine that there's just a, a movie worth of stories and, and encounters and just interesting things that happened along that, the pursuit of that achievement. 217 peaks is, that's a lot of mountains. <laughs> it really is. And um, the entire journey, I'm guessing, is about a thousand miles and about a quarter million vertical feet. So you've you've got some distance to travel, so it's going to take you a little while. Um, and great diversity here in the Adirondacks. We have you know, lakes and ponds you can travel across, you can do a couple ski approaches, but mostly it's just just these little uh, scrubby peaks that you're heading up. And, you know, sometimes you get out there and the weather's not great and you have some trouble route finding and you don't get up the peak. All right. So, you know, maybe you'll try it in a couple of weeks, maybe you'll try it next winter. So it's a long term journey. You know, it's going to take your average hiker quite a few years and it, you just kind of slug it out, you know. You, it, it's it's uh, it's not pretty all the time. It's not fun all the time. Sometimes you just have to grit your teeth and and push through the lousy parts of that journey. But like I think you were getting at, when you choose a unique journey or travel to a unique spot, the the reward is. Uh, almost overwhelming. So if I were to hike, for example, the Appalachian Trail this summer alongside hundreds of other successful through hikers, there would be something to said about there would be something to say about that journey, certainly. But let's say you know you hiked a couple hundred peaks that nobody else had been up. There's something about it that makes it very special. I absolutely agree. Um, if you're looking for that wilderness experience, something like what you did is is definitely what I would consider. If you're wanting to experience the culture, or you're new to this and you're not familiar and you want to kind of ease into it, trying out the, the AT, you know, weekend or a week or even doing the whole trail, it, that is a way to do it for sure. Um, but as you get more experience, you tend to want more of that seclusion, more of the re getting that feeling of, of I'm out here alone. Um, back. So it's, it's going to take something like that. And, and speaking of that, I don't know if you're ready to move on to it, but I'm really interested to hear more about this trans Adirondack route. Not a lot of people get to say that they get to, uh, create a trail and I have no idea what that process looks like. So I want to hear more about it. Tell us about that. The trans Adirondack route. What is that? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. One of my favorite things in the whole world is that first cup of coffee when you get up in the morning. But, you know, with, with being an adventurer, you don't always get to do your routine or you kind of throw yourself off or, you know, you might not always have time to drink the coffee the way you want it. And that's why I love Cometeer. They make incredible tasting coffee that you have to melt to make. 
It's delicious, quality coffee that's ready in seconds, and it arrives to your door flash frozen in the world's first 100% recyclable capsule. It's super simple to melt that coffee with either hot or cold water, no equipment needed, capsules recyclable, super easy. And how they do it, you know, they, 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 they brew amazing coffee with over 2,000 flavor compounds that exist in a single coffee bean, and then they immediately flash freeze it to preserve every ounce of that flavor, every ounce of that quality at minus 321 degrees Fahrenheit, right there in inside that capsule. And the taste, oh, the taste is awesome. I'm no connoisseur of coffee, but I, I do know the difference between a good and a bad cup of coffee. So of course, you don't have to take my word for it. If you want to try Flash Frozen, Cometeer Coffee, give it a shot. Cometeer.com slash adventure for $20 off your first order. That is C-O-M-E-T-E-E-R.com slash adventure for $20 off your first order. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Yeah, the Trans-Adirondack route is a 240-mile pathway that crosses the entire Adirondack Park of upstate New York. The Adirondack Park is 6 million acres, which is almost exactly the size of Vermont. It's about half public land and half private land, and to hike from border to border is about 240 miles. So in 2010, I had a goal of crossing the entire park without the use of any trails because I like off-trail travel and I like long-distance hiking. So it just made sense to combine those two. But even I had the good sense to not do that because I started thinking about it. I go, you know, bushwhacking for 240 miles seems excessive. It just doesn't... (laughs) It just, that's one. That's one way to put it. <laughs> excessive. Yeah, it, it seemed excessive, and it's easy to say you're going to do it as you're sitting in your living room, nice and dry. But I was thinking, oh my goodness, you know, what if it rains for ten days? Because the trip was going to take probably a month. So I scrapped it, and I said, well, let me try something different. Let me try to cross the entire Adirondack Park by piecing together all different kinds of trails. So to make a long story short, in 2010, August, I'm standing on the northern border of the park looking south, and about 240 miles and about 10 days later, I reached the southern border of the park by piecing together standard, good old-fashioned hiking trails, some road walking, uh, some snowmobile trails, and about six miles of off-trail travel. You know, a half mile here, a half mile there, just to connect maybe a road to a trail or a trail to another trail. Now, when I did this trip in 2010, I had absolutely no intention of doing anything afterwards. To me, it was just a fun hike. I had a couple of weeks off, and so I went backpacking. But when I got to the end, it was such a, a beautiful experience. It was unique. Uh, I said to myself, I bet somebody else would hike this thing. And here we are today. So I named it, wrote a guidebook, came out with a map set. I do a fair amount of public speaking about the route just to educate people uh, that it's a resource for recreation in upstate New York. And we've had 13 other through hikers. The route officially opened in 2013. So we're getting like maybe four through hikers a year. In addition to that, we're getting about two through hikers a year who don't make it. So we're having about maybe a 30 to almost 40% failure rate 
And I think it's because some hikers are taking it too lightly. So for example, we had a prospective through hiker fresh off the Appalachian Trail. Hey, that's 2,200 miles. You know, that's pretty far. And I think they saw the route and said, oh, 240 miles. Oh my God, that's nothing. And so I think people take the route a little too lightly. Seven miles of off-trail travel doesn't sound that tough, but you know, let's say you're from out west where it's sometimes a stretch to call it bushwhacking. You know, I think you guys prefer oh, yeah. the term you t- prefer the term off-trail travel. So when you get into the thick of it out here, it can be a little intimidating. That's where the route is right now. It's a nice opportunity for long-distance hikers to cross something in its in its entirety. In this case, the Adirondack Park. I think that's pretty cool. But there's also great chances for solitude. So I'm the only person who's through hiked it twice. I did it in 2010 when I created it. I did it this past fall, and this is pretty cool. The top 40 miles and the bottom 40 miles, which would we be, which would be excuse me, which would be about one third of the route. I saw no one both years. I totally get that. When people do a big accomplishment like the AT and then they jump into something that seems so much less daunting, it's not the distance. It's the psychological effect. You're alone. There's no, I mean, the AT could almost be paved. It's so well traveled. You know what I mean? It's so easy to follow. Because thousands upon thousands, if not millions of people are on it, putting their feet on it every year when you include day hikers. And something like this takes so many more skills. It's it's a psychological effect that's a lot different. I did a much shorter trail before, and it kicked my butt after doing a cross-country trip. And I thought, how did this little trail beat me so bad? But there was so many other things to consider, and I just didn't approach it with uh, the same level of, of... almost respect. That's, I think that's a good word. I was going to say conscientiousness, but I think respect is a a better word for this. I have to admit the most turned around I get when I'm navigating is going up some little wimpy peak somewhere because I take it too lightly. I'll say, well, you know, I've been up all the 3000 footers in winter and this little peak is 1,500 feet, two miles from the road. You know what? I'm not even going to look at my map. That's how easy this is going to (laughs) be. Right. That's how you get in trouble. (laughs) Yeah. I look at my watch. It's four hours later. And I'm like, where the hell am I? So I think that does happen when you're um, coming off a big accomplishment. You get these little ones and they really sneak up on you. How do you go about creating a route? Did you just literally sit down piece it together, went out and did it, and then said, I think more people would be interested in this, and then write the book and start promoting? It was as simple as that. And what saved me was I didn't approach the state of New York or the Department of Environmental Conservation, which oversees the park, and say, hey, let's make this thing totally official, and let's get rid of these little off-trail sections. So we're going to have to build some new trails. And this and that and the other thing. It's really just a homegrown grassroots long distance route. And that's why I specifically called it the Trans Adirondack Route, because it's not really the Trans Adirondack Trail, because it's so different than these standardized long distance hiking trails out there. So, yeah, I'm just some guy 
who pieced it together, hiked it a couple times, and now share that information. Wow. So, so what are what is your hopes with the route, say, in the next decade or two? What, what would you like to see it become? Um, I, I'm pretty happy with how it is now. Uh, I don't want to say I'm disappointed. I think I'm mildly surprised it hasn't gotten the use uh, that I expected, you know, three through hikers a year, four through hikers a year. I don't have a problem with that. I'm just mildly surprised because it's a really nice route. What probably keeps people off it is there's uh, some road walking in the north. People don't really don't like, like road walking, and they might not like the off-trail sections. But, you know, you have to think back to when the Appalachian Trail started. Uh, we had, of course, our first through hiker, Earl Schaefer. And then after that, it really didn't get much use. And then it just had the snowball effect. And, and we see that on the Pacific Crest Trail, too, right? Ten years ago, nobody's really hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, but now that's what everybody does. So it could increase in popularity. You know, on the other end, I would, I would hate to see it become really popular. You know, there, there's something beautiful about being able to hike 80 miles of a 240-mile route and see nobody. So I like where it is right now, and I do like the people who are attracted to it. These are people who have hiked the Long Trail and the Pacific Crest Trail and the Appalachian Trail. And they say, you know what, man, I just kind of want to get away from everything I don't know, I heard about this transatlantic route thing, and I'm just going to go check it out and do my own thing. All the thru-hikers have been really happy with it because you've got that diversity of different surfaces, a little off-trail travel, you've got some lakes. It only goes up three mountains. I think that's also what's appealing, where uh, a trail very similar to the transatlantic route is the Vermont Long Trail, which I've thru-hiked. And... So the transatlantic route, 240 miles, climbs 25,000 vertical feet. All right, well, that might sound like a lot, but it's not. The long trail is 30 miles longer, climbs triple the amount of vertical feet. The long trail climbs almost 100,000 vertical feet, which makes it the most difficult long trail in the U.S., I think. So another draw with the transatlantic route is once you get over those three mountains, you just hike through river valleys and from lake to pond, and it's actually pretty easy once you get over the peaks. And so I think as more people have less time but more desire to do this, they're going to be looking for those trails that are maybe a little more remote. Like you said, like, uh, you know, this whole through hiking culture has really exploded lately, and some of these trails that were a decade ago un unused are, are the the centerpiece now. One that comes to mind is the, I, I just learned about not long ago, was the Pacific Northwest Trail. I think it's one yes. of the most underrated trails because of its, it's so much shorter, but how potent it is with scenery and how epic the places are. It's, it's sea and Olympic National Park to Glacier and like just incredible scenery and like 50 people a year doing it. And so I, I just think it, within the next decade or so, we're going to see a huge, huge rise in, in these trails that are shorter because more people are going to, so many more people can take a month off work than six months. And so 
I think you should just uh, be patient because it's going to explode, uh, hopefully in a good way, soon. Yeah, we'll see. Um, yeah, you have the Appalachian Trail and Pacific Crest Trail on either end of the country, and there's a lot of great long distance hiking between you know 100 miles and about uh, 1500 miles sprinkled in there. You know, long distance hiking when you have you know something on the extreme eastern seaboard and something way out on the western seaboard it, it kind of reminds me of an old jo joke from politics and that is you know we've never elected a person that lives between the hudson river and malibu you know it's <laughs> <Right>. like <laughs> it, it's it's the at or the pct and people maybe think those are their only options but there's uh something to be said about these shorter a less frequently traveled trail. My ideal long distance trail is probably about 250 miles. I've never hiked the AT. My longest hike was a Florida trail at 1300. And uh, the logistics of it is one reason, you know, can you take six months off your job? Uh, the other reason is I, I, I just don't feel the need to necessarily walk that far. And maybe there are other people out there who prefer that as well. You did the Florida Trail? I did. I did that back, well, speaking about not seeing many people, I hiked that in 2002. Wow. I was. <laughs> I did not know that, man. I, I, gosh, I, I haven't talked to anybody that's done that in full. Yes, yes. I hiked that in 2002, which was pretty early for that trail, and I saw three hikers. <laughs> well, that's crazy. So what was the experience like? What, I mean, you know, it, it does seem, I'm from Florida, and I live close to parts of the trail, and I didn't know anything about it, and honestly, till I moved out west and saw some stuff on it, and I'm like, I, I heard about it, but never knew much. Is it underwhelming? Because it seems like it could be, or is it surprisingly interesting and beautiful? I found it surprisingly beautiful. Perhaps like a lot of other people who hike the Florida Trail, I was living in upstate New York, and I said, oh man, I got to I got to take a winter off. This is pretty miserable stuff up here. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I hiked it in February and March. I think it took me about 50 days and uh, started at the western end near Pensacola and traversed east across the panhandle and then due south ends uh, right around the northern border of the Everglades. I, I found it uh, fascinating and beautiful because I had never hiked in that type of environment before. I'm a mountain climber. The closest I had hiked to that were the Appalachians on the North Carolina-Tennessee border. So Florida was totally new to me. In 2002, the 1,200 mile, well, it's 1,300 miles, but there are two splits in the trail. So a through hiker will only cover about 1,200. Out of those 1,200 miles, there were easily 300 miles of road walking which wasn't particularly fun because the, the route was really young at the time. Uh, so the road walking wasn't the highlight, but you traverse at least three national forests and just these little backwater communities you enter. I tell people out of all the long distance trails I've done, I would only hike two another time. And one would be the Florida Trail and the other would be the Tahoe Rim Trail. Those are my two favorite ones. That is so crazy. I don't know. That makes me excited. I'm like, yeah, Florida. But I don't know. I just don't feel like it can compare to 
these mountains, you know what I mean? These beautiful places elsewhere in the country, but I don't know. Yeah, it it's different. I mean, I think the main draw of the Florida Trail, at least for me, is it's more of a getaway destination. You know, if we had the Florida Trail equivalent here in the Northeast, where it's just kind of flat and really not much is going on, I wouldn't do it. But if you're looking to take, you know, sometime between December and March off, and uh, you're looking for somewhere warm, the Florida Trail was great. I- I'm sure it's been done. It probably would be a really bad idea to try to through hike it in the summer. So it's a nice winter destination. Yeah, it'd be pretty miserable in the summer, I'd have to say. It'd, it'd be just unbelievably warm. It, and w- summers are just miserable down there. Can be on a really humid, hot day. It's, oh gosh, but winter would be fantastic. Wow. That, that, that gives me some ideas, man. I like that. So, so why don't we, uh, so many interesting things to talk about and directions we can go. And you're obviously yeah. filled with tons and tons of knowledge. Can you tell us some about your books? Uh, how, how many books do you have out and, and what kind of uh, topics do they cover? My seventh book will be out this summer. And um, <clears throat> I wrote my first book in 2010. I actually wrote for McGraw-Hill. And it's called Through Hiker's Guide to America. And that addressed exactly what we were just talking about. It was a guidebook to the short long distance trails of the U.S. So trails between 100 and about 1,300 miles long. I profiled 25 of them. And it was just a general guidebook reference book that answered the question, hey, I have a couple months off. Where do I want to go hiking? And after that, I, I took a couple years off from writing. Uh, I was just concentrating on hiking. I, I got back into writing with the trans route. So I wrote a guidebook to that. that. That came out in 2013. So now I have two guidebooks. Uh, my area of expertise is actually toponyms. So as you're hiking through the mountains and uh, along the swamps and the rivers and the lakes, etc., how did all those features get their names? So I'm a place name researcher, and I have two books about uh, toponyms of the Adirondack Mountains. I've got a memoir, which is just a collection of 10 really good nonfiction stories from the Adirondacks. And just a couple months ago, I had a unique place name book come out. So I usually write about the mountains. I, I live right near the capital city of New York, which is Albany. And my most recent book, Cradle of the Union, decodes historically Albany's 800 street names. So if you go to Henry Johnson Boulevard and Teacup Circle and Tryon Court and Tenbroke Place and the 796 others, how did they all get their names? So that was an urban place name book, which was surprisingly fun to write. It was fascinating. The seventh book coming out this summer is my first coffee table photo book. Uh, It's of the Adirondacks. And what's pretty cool about it is all the photos are taken off trail while I'm bushwhacking. There, there are no images from any trails in the Adirondack Park. <laughs> wow. What, what an interesting variety of projects. That's so random, but really interesting. You know, I, don't, I think I get bored easily because, you know, I'll do long distance hiking for a while and then peak bagging and then 
oh, I think I'll teach outdoor education. And oh, now I think I'll get a master's in clinical social work. And I'm just kind of <laughs> right. all over the place. And that comes into my writing as well. You know, I have the two place name books. But other than that, uh, all my writing falls into six different genres. Almost a different genre per, per book, essentially. Yeah, pretty much. So I know it's probably hard to tell since you're easily bored and uh, you, your interests vary. But what do you, what do you think the future holds for you? What what are you moving towards? What are you working on that e- either along with the trail, the Trans Adirondack route, or um, what other future book things? And your your career change. You just got a degree in in a, a different uh, field of study. So so what do you think it holds for you? Yeah. So I guess my life is can be drawn into three components: the professional. So my master's in clinical social work. I recently got licensed by the state. And I'm particularly interested in trauma. And I really like working with veterans. I have quite a bit of experience working with veterans. I'm a veteran myself. So I kind of have that veteran card to relate to that community very well. Um, I especially like working with combat veterans. It's very rewarding work. It could be tough, but it's the least I can do to try to help them out. For writing, uh, I'm always writing something. So right now I'm writing a settlement history of the Adirondacks. Uh, It's going to take probably four years to write. And it basically answers the question, who was the first person to show up in about every single spot in the Adirondack Mountains? So who showed up and built the dam and built the kiln and looked for iron and did the logging and what was the first birth and where's the oldest cemetery? It's really who penetrated the mountains when and what they did when they got there. As far as hiking goes, I've got this new pursuit. I've moved away from peak bagging and now I visit named topographic features. So what I'll do is the Adirondack Park, like a lot of other uh, you know, national parks, national forests, et cetera, they're cut into blocks of land management units. And so I'll pick a unit so up here, one of them is Faro Lake Wilderness Area. It's about 50,000 acres. And I'll look at a topographic map and I'll visit every single named feature. So every lake, every swamp, every peak, every ridge, every brook. And I'm finding it just so fun. I mean fun because the peaks are pretty low. Uh, they're all below 2,500 feet. Uh, almost all the features are off trail. And you're just going to these quaint ponds, these gentle ridge lines, these babbling little brooks. And after hiking the 217 highest in winter, I got to tell you, I earned it. I earned this very pleasant, just good old fashioned, relaxing hiking. Yeah, no kidding. You earned it. And that's what we encourage on the show. You know, it's not, we, we interview some pretty extreme athletes, and you do feel that pressure to do some of that sometimes, but honestly, it's about getting out there. It's about having a good time. If your idea of fun is running to the top of 14ers, do it. If your idea of fun is, is going to figure out why this lake is named what it is and it's a moderate hike and and that's what you want to do, do it. Like you got to find what does it for you. And it might change over time like it has for you. So it's really interesting to hear from you. Very much a life outside the box. And 
man, I'm excited to see what the future holds for you and what kind of other projects we're going to see come out of that brain of yours. <laughs> hey, uh, people ask me that, and I know I just answered it, but you know, things change. I mean, your guess could be as good as mine, and uh, I, I really enjoy what you say about you know going outdoors and finding your niche. And uh, you know, I think the question has been asked. You know, who is the best hiker who um, has the greatest accomplishments, et cetera. And I've always said that the, the best hiker out there is the one who has the most fun and leaves as little trace on the environment as possible. It, it doesn't come down to how many peaks you've climbed, how many miles you've logged. It really doesn't matter. It's about the time out there and what you do with it. Man, tr truer words have never been spoken. Get out there, have fun doing what you're doing, and make it help it make you a better person because that's what all this is about. If you're gonna do some experience just to lord it over over other people, then don't even talk to us. <laughs> <laughs> but well, oh Eric, thank you so much for being on the show, man. This was this was fantastic, refreshing. It's my pleasure, my pleasure, and I appreciate you having me. You've got some great programs, and I'll certainly keep tuning in. All right, thank you so much, and, and best of luck in all your future endeavors, and keep getting out there and changing the way we, we see the outdoors. Thank you, Mason. All right, have a good one. Okay, bye-bye. Right, bye. First of all, Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. <laughs>